now more than ever, people need to go within and plug into that cellular memory, plug into the divine source, detach as much as possible from the matrix. Hello again, everybody. This is James Bartley, and you're listening to the Cosmic Switchboard Show. Today, our very special guest is Jim Goodall. Jim Goodall returns to the Cosmic Switchboard Show to talk about a number of issues. Uh, he knows Bob Lazar personally. He's a world-renowned expert on the SR-71 Blackbird, the F-117 stealth fighter, nuclear submarines, and knows a lot about Area 51 because Jim Goodall has developed sources there over the years. Without any further ado, Jim Goodall, welcome back to the Cosmic Switchboard Show. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. There's, there's a, like you said, like you mentioned earlier, there's an awful lot going on as far as spooky airplanes, UFO sightings, uh, briefings to the president. Uh, we live in interesting times. We do. Now, over the years, Jim, you've been so closely connected to the aviation community, especially the deep black aspect of the aviation community. What have you heard over the years from pilots, from ground crew at these various air bases around the world, especially there in, in the desert? Well, a number, a number of years ago, I'm talking about decades ago, uh, my boss was uh, Major General uh, Wayne Gatlin. He was Chief of Staff for Air for the Minnesota Air Guard. And I asked him, I said, General Gatlin, uh, what policy, policies and procedures are in effect today, and this is back in the uh, early 80s, to report UFOs? And he's, he just laughed. He said, you're better off not saying a word. Now, that, has, that philosophy has changed. I said, well, what do you mean? I said, when they got rid of Operation or Project Blue Book, uh, virtually all UFO sightings were career-killing programs. No, oh, no doubt. And he said, really, the only, you know, if, if you were to see one today, and this, again, this is back in the early 80s, you would be reported to public affairs. They would smile at you and tell you to go on your way. <laughs> and now we have today. And, there, and the, reason, the reason that was, I, I asked General Gallon specifically, because when he was a major with the Minnesota Air Guard up in Duluth, they were on alert. They had live weapons. Again, this is back in the 50s. They, caught, they scrambled three F-94Cs because the Finley Air Force Station saw an unidentified fast-moving object over the middle of Lake Superior. Now, you don't fly over Lake Superior willy-nilly. It creates its own weather, and most private pilots avoid flying over that large body of water. But they launched three F-94s. Uh, General Gatlin said they got a visible on the object. The weapon systems operator, the Wizzo, in the back seat, uh, had his radar on. When he tried to lock on, the radar just died. It just went doo, and uh, they tried it again uh, and again. As soon as they, you know, as soon as they put lock on for the weapon or the weapons, the uh, system just tur- you know, basically turned itself off. The Radar operators at the Finley Air Station said that it's heading right towards us. Now it's disappeared. And as General Gatlin, then a major, as he's in full burner, which isn't a whole lot for an F-94, as he's coming up to the Finley Air Force Station, he said, well, the reason why it's not on the radar anymore, it's directly above your radar dome. So the guys went, uh, went running out of the building uh, at the geodesic dome type looked straight up and there was this UFO and as <laughs> General Gatlin got up uh, within about 15 miles of it, this thing went straight up and disappeared. And it was clear air. It wasn't swamp gas. And it wasn't, we didn't have any capability like that in the early 1950s. So that's one of the reasons I asked him, yeah, how do you report a UFO? And then that's when the subject came up. Well, if memory serves, uh, the officer pilot Felix Monclaw was flying when he was scrambled over the, one of the Great Lakes, and he wound up disappearing along with his plane. So that, that's the first thing I thought about when, uh, when you told me that story. The concept of the career-killing move, too, because I, I've noticed this when I've been around uh, military aviators, Jim. It's, they'll talk about anything. I mean, I don't want to say there's a brashness to them, but we're talking about type, type A alpha males here. 
uh, these, especially these fighter pilot types. But when the subject of UFOs comes up, at least in the old days, uh, you, you could hear a pin drop. Absolutely. And, and I, like you said earlier, I've been uh, digging into Area 51 for the last 50 years. And I've, uh, my, my true love affair is with the Blackbird from the A-12, YF-12 uh, through the SR-71. And I was tracking down pilots that had lost one, had crashed one. And my dad lived in, at the time, lived in Tullahoma, Tennessee. And a former SR-71 pilot who had the distinction of crashing an SR-71, being one that crashed, uh, I tracked him down. He lived in Lynchburg, Tennessee. And his name was Dave Fruhoff. So I'm at Dave's house, and I, uh, we, we're talking about his accident. And it was an electrical failure on a trainer version of the Blackbird. I said, what do you think about UFOs? And he said, they absolutely, absolutely positively do exist. I said, what do you mean? He said, in 1971-72 time frame, well, Vietnam was, it was a very, very hot, you know, a hot topic at the time and a hot war. He was on a nighttime training mission in an SR-71 on the far Western Pacific. About 11.30 at night, he's traveling at Mach 2.7, which is where a lot of the Blackbirds flew because it, reduced, it reduces the thermal stress on the system significantly over Mach 3.2. And they were, uh, they were about 78,000 feet. They were going in a straight line. They weren't turning or making any maneuvers. It's about a three-quarter moon, and Dave noticed an object traveling in his same direction at his approximately same speed. He figured that about 85,000 feet and five-plus miles away. So he got, on, he got on radio on Secure Voice and called Kadena, where he was flying out of, and asked if there was another blackbird up. He said, no, you're up there by yourself. And he said, no, I'm not. <laughs> his backseater, his RSO, said, Dave, we have company. He said, yeah, I'm going to take a closer look. So he uh, advances the throttles at about a 10-degree bank as he starts climbing, and he starts banking towards this, this object. When he was, uh, you know, almost the same altitude, but still a, a mile or two away. Again, it's at night. And all he's getting are glimpses, glints of light reflection off a metallic surface. Now, now it wasn't a round surface. It was a shaped surface of some sort. And when he was about, uh, say, a mile or so away, almost the same altitude, this thing took off at about a 30-degree angle of attack and left him in the dust. Wow. And uh, he figured he'd lost sight of it between 180 and 200,000 feet. And he figured it was going Mach 8 to Mach 12, which was his estimate. So fast forward to 1980, Dave retires. And once you've been in the black secret community of, of spooky airplanes and stuff, you usually stay there. And he got a job as facility manager at Area 51. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him. And he's the one who brought in the uh, F-86s, the former Canada Air F-86s. And he was responsible. He ended up being responsible for all non-program aircraft and every building. So once he was there for about a, about a year, he figured he, uh, he knew enough of everybody there that he wouldn't get in trouble by asking questions. So he started asking. He said, do we have something here that would leave an SR-71 in the dust in the early 70s? And absolutely no one would say, yeah, we you know we we have that we've had that ability. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't built test flight uh, tested or you know flown out of Area Fifty One. So when I asked Dave again, I said, "Well, do you believe in UFOs?" And he said, "Absolutely, positively, they do exist." Okay, this was I interviewed Dave in the early nineties, and I believe it was nineteen ninety six, just before his death. I called Ben Rich who was the re retired president of Lockheed Skunk Works. Now, we had an uh, ongoing friendship where we talked once a quarter for 25-plus years. And uh, Ben was uh, 
basically on his deathbed. He's at USC Medical Center. He had a, a stage four esophageal cancer. And uh, I, asked, I asked Ben, I said, do you believe in UFOs? And basically he said, yes, absolutely, they positively do exist. He said, Jim, we have things out of, out of the desert. Now, he didn't say Area 51 and he didn't say uh, S4, but he had said, we have things out in the desert that's, that are 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. Oh. Not what you think you can make in 50 years, but what you can imagine in 50 years. And then he said, if you've seen movies like Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth the effort. And that coupled with his letter to John Andrews dated June of 86, when John Andrews, formerly from Testers, and my, one of my dearest friends, when he wrote a letter to Ben asking if he and Kelly Johnson believed in UFOs. And then John uh, added their two categories, both man-made and extraterrestrial. And Ben came back on his corporate letterhead as president of the Lockheed Advanced Development Programs that are known as the Skunk Works. He said, both Kelly and I are firm believers in UFOs. We refer to ours as unfunded opportunities, and he underlines the U, the F, and the O. But then again, he's, he went on and said, but beware. There, will people, there are people who will lead you astray, and there's some people that will do you harm. So do UFOs exist? Yes. Are they real? Yes. Do I believe Bob Lazar? Yes, I do. Because I knew him before he went to work out in the desert. Now, one of the things that uh, Bob has been talking about for some time was the, as we all know, the, the back engineering effort at S4. Now, what's come out in the recent past with this whole Admiral Wilson thing? I don't, I don't know if you've kept up with that, Jim, but the spin on that is from the source within the aerospace company that the Admiral had, had visited was they only have one intact alien craft and I, I knew right off the bat that that was something you just try on for size something you just kind of throwing a bone kind of thing when i myself had seen six craft fly out of the test site at three thirty in the morning uh, approximately uh, and bob has stuck to his guns his story has never varied and i think over time and especially with the release of this documentary jim i'm hoping that more people come forward and at least Bob gets some semblance of, of vindication for all he's gone through. Well, I mean, Bob, Bob's story, like you just mentioned, has never changed. He could have made a lot of money by exaggerating or adding to, you know, to, uh, to what some people wanted him to say. Yeah, I talked to a little gray man and I actually went flying with him or whatever, but he's kept to his guns and I knew him before he went to work out at S4. I met him at John Lear's house. I had just photographed, I was the first civilian to photograph the F-117 and it was late at night. And this is before digital cameras and I had print film. I was waiting for a photo mat to open up and we're at John Lear's house. And John told me, he said, I have, I have a new friend I want you to meet. He's, uh, he has the same mindset that we do. And in, you know, in walked uh, Bob Lazar, and we hit it right off, and we were talking, and and I told him that I had just photographed the F-117, but I have to wait till tomorrow to get the film processed. I said, well, come with me. I have, uh, back to my house, I have a C-41 uh, film processor I, I use for uh, working with uh, real estate agents. I process their film. So we headed up, we jumped in his car, and we're heading over to his house, uh, off of West Charleston. And Bob looked at me and he said, you know, I feel sorry for John Lear. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he's from the world famous Lear family, Learjet, among other things. And he said, and the guy believes in UFOs. I said, how, <laughs> how stupid is that? He said, I'm a nuclear physicist. If I can't prove it mathematically or touch it with my hands, it doesn't exist. We just sort of laughed, went with their process the film came back and a couple of months later he ended up going to work out in the desert 
Now, a year later or eight months later is when he, uh, when he went public and George Knapp was the uh, recipient of, uh, of him going public. And I'd known George for a long, long time and a, a real straight shooter. So George went out and did some investigation on Bob. Uh, was he real? Uh, people were saying that, oh, he's a fraud. He never did this, he never did that. And they've asked a lot of people that he said he allegedly worked for or worked with. And their response was no comment at all. Now, if you're involved in a classified program of any sort and someone asks you a question about it, you say no comment. If some guy is full of himself and he's uh, pretending to be someone he's not, and you ask someone, such like Edward Teller or some of the other key people that he that Bob mentioned he'd worked, was interviewed with or worked for, they would have said Bob Lazar is a fraud. But absolutely none of them said that he was. It's just no comment. So to, so you can you can neither conf, uh, confirm nor deny the existence of classified information or classified program. But if a guy's a total fraud, you're free to say that. And yes. no one, no one dealing with Bob at uh, Sandia ever said that he was a fraud. So George Knapp goes to Albuquerque, goes to the public library section of Sandia Labs, their Kirkland Air Force Base, finds a phone book for Sandia employees when Bob Lazar said he worked there and lo and behold there's a bob lazar in the room he said he worked with on the telephone number he said was assigned to his office and he looked at the the two or three other names that bob said worked in that particular lab and sure as shooting it was the same room number and the same phone number then uh, george uh, went to the local newspaper and started looking up a story on Professor Bob Lazar at Sandia has a 300 mile an hour car. <laughs> Jet powered uh, fiberglass bodied uh, Lamborghini Countach that he had. And it was a picture of Bob standing in front of his jet car and it had Sandia scientists drives at 300 miles an hour across the headline or something to that effect. So it just it just added to the fact that Bob Lazar is who he said he is. I believed it then, and I believe it now. And even when he went, even when he went to court, Jim, the court system had the same problem that that George Knapp and many other people did. They simply couldn't find any evidence of his his employment and his education. It had all gone into the ether. I saw it when we went and did. Uh, the photo processing for the print, uh, the photos I shot of the F-117, Bob's uh, diploma from MIT was on the wall. Now, they, when he was uh, out in the desert at S-4, they came in and, and cleaned out his house of, of every record that he had that would prove he was real. Now, let's, uh, let's fast forward to uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. 1990, 91 time frame. I'm, uh, I, was at, I was in the Minnesota Air Guard as a traditional weekender. I was the wing historian. And they needed historians uh, for Guard Bureau. So to get, a, to get out of a, a, a bad relationship, I volunteered. I volunteered to go to Saudi Arabia for a year as well, but that's beside the point. So I'm, uh, I head off to uh, DC. I have a copy of Bob's W-2, and it says uh, Department of Naval Intelligence. So I find the Office of Naval Intelligence. I go in, there's a young lieutenant sitting behind the uh, desk. At the time, I'm an E-6 tech sergeant. I'm on active duty, and I'm in uniform, and I hand the uh, lieutenant, Navy lieutenant, uh, Bob Lazar's W-2, and I said, can you tell me where this place is located? He looked at it, he said, one minute, he got up, walked into the two-stars office, he was in there for about a minute, minute and a half, and he came out and he said, 
the Admiral wants to see you. I found that interesting. I, who am I? I'm an E6 and a two-star wants to talk to me. So I go in and give him a sharp salute, go to parade rest, and this uh, Navy two-star rear admiral is looking at me very sternly. And he, as he's holding Bob's W-2, he says, I don't know where you got this, but if I ever see your face cross, come through the threshold of my office ever again, you're going to be the most sorry uh, Air Force private <laughs> uh, you've ever seen. Now, you were dismissed. And with that, he took Bob's W-2 and put it in the shredder. I do. I salute, do an about face, and leave. <laughs> now, if the zip code of his W-2 is, is allegedly uh, a secret location, I was told that at the, in the Washington, D.C. area codes, start off with 20201 up to 202, I think it's 43. But from uh, zip code 20237 to 42, I think it is, or something like that, those are classified, very secret locations. And maybe that's what set off the Admiral. But if this, if Bob's W-2 was phony, if what he said wasn't real, I would have not, I would not have had the reaction from the Admiral that I got. Yes, and the fact that it was a tax return from the Department of Naval Intelligence showing his wage earnings and his time of employment, too. I mean, that's, that's an official document. So that, yep. that's, that's another issue that the, the skeptics just, they can't wrap their minds around that. And another thing that came up in that documentary, which I, I watched, is the, uh, the documentarian, he, he talked about how he'd gone to various air bases and secure facilities, and he was able to see that hand scanner thing that, that Bob was talking about. Bob talked about decades ago, this weird thing with like, prongs and pins sticking out, and he held his hand over it, and it measures the bone structure of his hands or whatever. People couldn't make heads or tails out of that when Bob first talked about it, and lo and behold, decades later, the guy doing the docu documentary comes across evidence of this, even gets pictures of it. And watching that segment when he presented Bob with pictures of the, uh, of the scanner device, it, it was a full moment for Bob. I could tell he was getting very emotional. It, it was like vindication for him. And I felt really good for the guy because he'd gone through a lot. And to be able to have that kind of confirmation from inside the system, it, it must have felt good for him. Well, the the same type of hand scanner uh, was used during the basically the same time frame that Bob was working out at S four. They used the same scanners at Tonopah Test Range when the F one seventeens were operational out of there. So it, it, it is it is a uh, high resolution multiple. It, it checks your your entire hand palm print and all five of your your thumb and four fingers. It checks that out, and that has to be verified. So it's it's a very secure way of verifying someone's authenticity. So that's that's the thing about it. He had the opportunity to make a lot of money if he would have fabricated a different story, and he didn't. And he hasn't. It's been thirty years, and his story has has not changed. I got to thinking, uh, Jim. Maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but, you know, the timing of this Admiral Wilson communications memo and all that stuff, um, and also the, the release of, of the naval aviation videos of, of the UFOs and the discussions about in the media of, of the naval aviation running into swarms of UFOs on the East Coast. If I didn't know any better, I, 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 would, I would think it's almost a way to like head off at the past the revelations that Bob and others are coming forth with, almost as a way to kind of dilute the message or, or divert or distract. What's your take on that? Because Bob's story is the meat of the matter. It's, it's where the rubber meets the road. Absolutely, absolutely. And 
I mean, I've had this question asked multiple times by, by many people. Uh, how is it possible that to keep everything under wraps, discredit people, and what have you? And my response is, maybe it's not our decision. <laughs> maybe it's their decision, whoever they may be. So that's, you know, that's, how, I, that's how I look at what, you know, the, the fact that anytime something comes up that's, that's factual, it's, and that, that paradigm is starting to change primarily because of with the, with the Navy pilots using their sophisticated radar and imaging uh, technology are tracking these things. And it, it seems like there's more and more uh, shots of these UFOs every day. I wonder why there hasn't been any Air Force or retired Air Force people have come forward because up till now we've just heard from the naval aviation community. It's it's because it's not a career enhancer. Now the uh, now Dave Fruhoff told me about it. He's an Air Force pilot uh, because he was long retired and he was out of the black program business. Uh, he was making uh, he was growing chili peppers and and whatever there in Lynchburg, Tennessee. He also appeared in, in a Jack Daniels commercial. They said that one of their residents has gone 2,200 miles an hour at 85,000 feet. That would be Dave. Do you think that the, the Navy pilot issue w- was, in a way, kind of like a, a way to get more credibility back to the military, right, uh, to kind of detract from – all the people, all the civilians, it's the age of the camcorder, it's the age of the digital phone camera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just, just a way to kind of make it seem like, okay, we have this military priesthood, they have all the answers, go to them instead of all these civilians that are talking about these stories. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, when you're in the military, and I, I was for 27 years, not full-time, five years active, and then 22 as, as a tr- traditional air guardsman. There's certain things you don't say because you know it's going to kill your career. And that's, and I got to believe that's why a lot of uh, Air Force pilots who may have experienced the same, you know, the same thing these Navy guys did. That's why they're not saying anything because it, it's a career killer. Who wants to, who wants to do that? Nope. Yeah. It's also the pensions that are at risk too. Not just if they're officers and, 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 you know, enlisted NCO retired there, that's going to be an issue if they put their 20, 20 years in. Now you mentioned John Lear earlier, uh, Jim, uh, he came out some years ago with the, the, the John Lear hypothesis. And I remember it clearly. And apparently he got some of this information from some of his sources he developed over the years, uh, in the intelligence community, in the aerospace community. What are some of the things that John had revealed to you over the years, which may or may not have been part of that John Lear hypothesis? Because I, I know that John had talked to people in Area 51 and elsewhere. But what's your take on what, what John had shared over the years? Well, I've known John for 40 some odd years. And the one thing John is, is a character. Um, but he, he has, yeah, he has, become uh, friends and had relationships with a lot of people that work out at, out in the desert, whether they work at TTR or whether they work uh, at area 51 uh, S4 was, uh, that was you know, the only person from that worked at S4 that he knew of was of course Bob Lazar. Uh, there's some things he says are kind of outrageous, but it's who John is. Uh, his heart is in the right place. Now he, to show you where his heart is in the right place when it comes to UFOs, when he was the chief pilot for America Trans Air, I think they were out of Indianapolis, and he was flying LTEL 11s and uh, I think 707 320s. And he'd, he had, uh, on his own dime, on, with his own money, he had traveled around and found people who had been abducted. He would find a local uh, certified uh, hip, uh, hypnosis specialist, someone who, uh, who specialized in, in going in deep, he would hire them and then he would put them under uh, deep hypnosis, not, not John, but the, the doctor. And then John would ask him questions. And he said, out of the 14 
or 15 people that he interviewed, all the stories with one exception were almost identical word for word of what, that, what had happened. Now these people had no connection with each other. These people had absolutely uh, no intellectual capability to fake what they were talking about. They just weren't, I mean, they're the type of people who were just salt of the earth types. Well, a, a newscaster or a TV uh, newsreader or journalist in Houston got wind of this, called the president of American Transair and told him that your senior pilot at American Transair is a UFO nut. Either you have, either you shut him up or we're going to push, we're going to push the idea that American Transair has a senior pilot, a Czech airman pilot that is unhinged and crazy. And the president pulled John, this is, this is for John, pulled John in. I said, John, this is what this guy in Houston has said. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm not going to fire you, but I'm going to ask you, please button, you know, button it up as far as UFOs go and you can keep your job. And, and John said, my belief is UFOs are real. And for me to say otherwise would, you know, would be fooling myself. Uh, and I won't do that. And he was terminated. He, he lost a job that paid six digits a year for his belief. Now his wife, Mary Lee had a fit. And when John was, uh, was off somewhere else doing some flying. Cause he's, he's certified in on 50 or 60 aircraft types. Um, she took all his filing cabinets, which she has a lot of, and everything associated with, with UFOs and put it in a storage facility that was unknown to him and then changed all the phone numbers. And Mary Lee told John that, the only people that you could, can have your telephone number are the people I approve of because he just lost a you know, very high paying job because of, because of his uh, stand on UFOs. And it was affecting the bottom line of the family and barely wasn't going to put up with it. But that just shows you where John's heart is. I mean, he believes with every ounce of, of, of energy that he has and belief he has that UFOs are real. And he's, he was willing to put his money where his mouth was. Yeah, not many people would be willing to do that, especially from a salary that large. Absolutely. Now, another one of the key players you mentioned earlier, uh, Jim, George Knapp, has played a key role in, in getting Bob's story out. And I remember attending a workshop that George uh, gave years ago. And in it, he talked about, and I don't know how much he told you about this. I don't know how much you're at liberty to, to comment on it. Nothing I have is sacred, sacred or secret. So if I have the answer to the question, I will do my best to answer it. Okay. Well, well George mentioned years ago that he had been in discussions with a very prominent uh, Nevada family that uh, had close ties uh, in the business world, and also I think they owned land in the Groom Mountain Range area. And he was given information about Groom Lake, and this information goes back decades. And at the time, George said that if the name of this person ever gets out, it would completely blow the lid off the whole UFO cover-up. Now, I'm not asking for the name of the guy because George did mention he had to wait for this guy to pass away before he could use the information. But uh, I'm not aware if George has ever shared any more of that information about uh, this prominent Groom Lake family that had uh, inside information about Area 51. Did he ever talk to you about that? Well, uh, John Lear did a little bit, and George mentioned uh, the, the family that owned the Groom Mine. That may be the people he was referring and they eventually lost their their mining claim and were from what I understand compensated uh, when you when you have the president of Lockheed skunkworks and a Air Force colonel who flew sr 71s and uh, the, the 
investigative research that George Knapp has done about uh, the possibility of alien spacecraft uh, being real. Uh, yeah, you have to add some credibility to that. I mean, it's just, it, it's, everybody, everybody laughs, oh, UFOs, ha, ha, ha. But, you know, but to quote Jodie Foster's character in, in movie Contact, if we're the only ones, what a waste of space. And, and based on that comment, for, for a couple of years, I was a docent at the Kitt Peak National Observatories outside of Tucson. But they have 24, I actually have 22 optical telescopes and two radio telescopes up there. And about, you know, about two or three months ago at a, at a docent meeting, I have since uh, quit the uh, docent job up there. It was just, it was, a, it was a 10 hour commitment on the days I went up. And, uh, but they had a, they said they have just, and this is a senior uh, National Science Foundation PhD. Yeah, he is the number, one of the top guys at uh, at the National Optical Astronomy Observatories, which has the facilities at Kitt Peak down in Chile and in Hawaii. And he said they, based on what they have discovered uh, at the several locations observing the the heavens, they estimate that for every star in the galaxy or in the in the universe, not the galaxy, for every star in the universe they estimate there are probably one and a half objects orbiting the stars on average and just at the 2.1 meter telescope up at kitt peak in the last five years they were able to identify eight thousand exoplanets just just in our galaxy and in close proximity to to earth so they estimate that out of all the planets in the in the universe, they calculate, and I guess it's best you know, based on you know based best case practices, that there are approximately two billion, and that's with a B, Earth-like planets in an in an inhabitable zone, much like our Earth, with liquid water and a star about the same size. That's two. Billion. Now, if you if you just take a one hundredth of one percent of those two billions, and if life has been created similar to ours, there's still hundreds of thousands of planets that have that that have life on it. So, to, you know, the the fact that people say, "Well, UFOs are, are baloney. We're the only ones." Well, that does, that doesn't hold water. I mean, I would like, to, I would like to believe that maybe we're so special, we're the only ones, but we're not. We're not even close. And also, you know, the notion that some of those civilizations would have a major head start on us. They may have been like far more advanced than us over spans of millions of years. I mean, if if they have, just look at what aerospace has done in the last, well, since nineteen oh three, and where where we're at today. Just think if that was a thousand year or 10,000 or a hundred thousand or a million year advance on where we're at at our particular point in evolution, I would say absolutely positively UFOs are real. They do exist. And people I know that have worked at Area 51, people I know that have worked on black programs, including Ben Rich, including uh, Dave Fruhoff and and a number of other uh, people who are really beyond reproach when they all say that UFOs are real, both man man-made and extraterrestrial. And the fact that the alien technology has been in the hands of these, uh, in the military initially at least, and then in the hands of these private corporations too, and, and that was the the part of the crux of of Bob Lazar's story was his unhappiness, understandably that this information was not released to the wider scientific community. It was being hoarded, essentially. It would never see the light of day. It was only going to benefit, potentially, a very small, that upper one-tenth of one percentile elite rich people, once again, because we're not going to see any benefit of this. And 
that's what the problem with disclosure is, Jim, is it doesn't go far enough. It, it doesn't talk about all the, the cases and sightings and encounters people have had, not just over the decades, but over the millennia. And the, the jet crashes and the jet fighter uh, UFO chases over the years. Uh, how would you like to see disclosure play itself out? Well, what are the things that, that are the top of your list that need to be emphasized? I think the simple, I think possibly, and again, it's, it's my opinion. And of course, opinion, opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody has one. I'd call something else, but not on the radio. I don't know if we humans are in control of, of the dissemination of the information. It may, it may be they, they, they have a chokehold on the powers that be, both here and in Europe and the former Soviet Union and wherever. Now, you're, we're more and more, we're seeing more references to alien uh, craft in archaeological uh, artwork and uh, statues and whatever. And it, it just, the more you think about it, ancient people could not have done some of the things they have done without modern or advanced, extremely advanced technology. You know, I go to you know, Machu Picchu, you go to, you go to the, the Great Pyramids in Egypt. How were those blocks moved? How were they cut? How were they transported? Same with uh, Stonehenge. And you know, the list can go on and on and on from the ancient world is how in the heck were they able to do this? And the question is, I mean, the answer is, gee, I don't know. Well, someone does. But maybe, maybe we are not allowed by, by their actions, their being the aliens, that we should be allowed to, uh, to release the information. A number of years ago, and this is when John Andrews was still alive, he was, he was good friends with Linda Moten Howe. Now, I've never, I've never had the pleasure of meeting her. But through John, he told me, this is John Andrews, he told me that she had been given a contract by the government to take hours, I mean, talk hundred, hundreds of hours of video and eight millimeter and 16 millimeter uh, movies on UFOs and put together a documentary that outlines exactly what, what, what we're up against. And John told me that she was about two thirds of the way through putting this production together when the government came in, confiscated everything that they had given her, plus everything that she had put together as far as edited uh, product and left without a word or saying that uh, we'll get back to you. It was just, uh, the program came to an end and it came to an end for, for a reason that wasn't explained to anybody. So Linda probably has a lot of answers that I don't have because she's seen, you know, she's seen a good amount of the, uh, the imagery that, was, that she was given and then uh, subsequently confiscated. I think some of that may have had to do with the, the Bob Ebenegger film that never came to light. I'm wondering if we're, you're talking about the same thing, that some of the film she was talking about way back when had to do with the alleged landing of, uh, of ETs at Holloman Air Force Base in either 68 or 64, depending on the source. Was that some of the information that was in that, that film? Well, I, I believe she, she was giving stuff from the 50s all the way up to at the time present day. Now, I'm an avid aviation photographer, and that's one of the reasons I joined the Guard after being out 10 years. And I've been to 213 Air Force Guard reserve bases primarily to photograph airplanes. And on a trip to Cannon Air Force Base in Clovis, New Mexico, I... I go to public affairs, I got everything cleared. I'm gonna be going out in the flight line and taking pictures of F-111s. And I'm, as I'm talking to the, uh, the public affairs NCO, he was a young black kid, uh, very articulate, uh, knew his business. I, I asked him, I said, where were you before here? And he said, well, I was at Bentwaters. I said, oh, were you, were you there when the UFO landed? And he stops the car 
and he looks at me and, and he almost he almost looked pale when I asked him that question. And he says, if I hear one more word about what you just said, I'm having you thrown off base. Now, why would a young man, and he was, he was probably in his late 20s, uh, maybe early 30s, why, why would he make this stance if what happened at Bentwaters never happened? This just adds more to the to the credibility of what Bob Lazar said. Hey, they're they're real and they're out there. And I worked on them. Uh, now this is a this is a young man that was at Bentwaters, uh, Wheat Ridge when they had the UFO incident. You know, I guess in the early eighties. I don't remember the exact date, but he was a he was a public affairs person at the time. And that's, I mean, he literally, I mean, he, he slammed on the brakes and stopped. And he said, if, if you bring this subject up one more time, I have you thrown off the base. So that just adds to, to the mystery. Why, why would he be upset if it wasn't a fact? He, he could have said, oh, that's just all bull. I was there. There was nothing. A bunch of cars farting, you know, farting out in the out in the uh, forest, and maybe someone ignited this, you know, the swamp gas. He could have said that, but no, he was visibly visibly upset and was re- ready to punish me for asking a question. He was he was avoiding the subject matter. <laughs> well, Bent Waters is going to be, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, out in the open again because there's going to be a new documentary coming out about that with some of the key witnesses and it, it it will blow the lid off it i mean so a lot is going on we got the lazar documentary that's making waves right now there's going to be uh, the bentwaters documentary that's going to be coming out soon i'm really looking forward to that and to uh, elaborate on what you said jim i really do feel the same thing that this controlling factor is not human it's alien essentially and they want to keep a lid on this they it's kind of like a pressure valve kind of modus operandi where they release bits and pieces of it just to kind of let the pressure off and divert attention and i think they're trying to create a a new priesthood if you will uh, of people that will be the go-to guys as far as being the experts on ufos Meanwhile, the real players, the real people that have all the, uh, at least some of the information, they get marginalized, they get ignored. Uh, and that's pretty much their, how they've played it all this time. Uh, because there may come a point in time, Jim, when these aliens, however many different groups and civilizations they are, they may start becoming more overt, more public, doing things that the media and the governments will not be able to deny at all. So they're, they're going to have to apply some spin control to it. And I think that's what's going on. I, th- I think, again, this is just my opinion. I think the only way that the world in general is going to accept the fact that UFOs were real, if one lands on the White House lawn doing a Rose Garden live uh, telecast, much like in Mars Attacks. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know, it's just... Everybody that I've talked to about the subject matter that I that are in the know, none of, none of them say that. Nah, you're you're being unrealistic. You know, UFOs there there can't there can't be uh, life outside of Earth. Well, our astronomers who aren't who aren't UFO type people have said the exact opposite that uh, that UFOs are real. And the other thing is. Ninety-five percent of the world's population is basically held in check from going over the edge by a strong belief in a in God, in God, and that's the glue that keeps most of the world together. Now, if you're if you're educated and you're open-minded and uh, you're not afraid of the truth. And you can talk about UFOs. You can even, you know, you can even try to prove that they're real, like Bob. But the majority, a majority of the world does not want to hear that. 
and I think that's and that's where one of that's where one of the problems are uh, is the fact that they a lot of people don't not do not want to hear the truth, and that's a shame. Aaron, it's real, and it's just a matter of time before uh, it's only a matter of time before the stuff hits the fan. And I think I think that is fairly. I don't know. It just there's a lot of things that are leading up to uh, to disclosure and official official disclosure with the Navy doing this. The fact that they briefed they briefed President Trump on the event uh, that is, that is more than just covering your butt or trying to uh, to do whatever. That's basically telling us they're there or they're here, and we better get used to it. So, yes, that's a very good point. Well, we've reached the end of a fascinating first segment with our guest, Jim Goodall, and we've still got a whole other segment to go. Uh, Jim, how could uh, people find you on Facebook? And could you tell a, a bit about your most recent book? Well, I, I'm, I'm working on books number 26 and 27. Book number 25 should be out shortly. Book 24 is my ultimate book. And what I'm talking about is my 24th book is a pictorial history on the uh, Lockheed Blackbirds. It's 224 pages. It is uh, published by Sheffer Publishing out of Acklin, <clears throat> excuse me, Acklin, Pennsylvania. It's hardbound. And it has stuff in there that even guys at the Skunk Works have never seen. That was book number 24. Number 25 is a pictorial, again from Sheffer, hardbound. Uh, on the pictorial of the Sea Wolf Virginia class fast attack submarines. Book number 26 is on the Ohio class. I'm just waiting to get access to an SSGN. Book 27 is on the uh, 75th anniversary of the Lockheed Skunk Works. Yeah, and I'm having a, I'm having a fun time with that. Uh, initially, Lockheed was considering contracting with me to do it but skunk work was interested in the corporate wasn't but i decided it's something i had a passion for anyway so i'm going to continue we've reached the end of the first segment with our guest jim goodall you're listening to the cosmic switchboard show if you like what we do if you believe in what we do please go to the cosmic switchboard.com sign up and become a member and we'll see you at the top of the next segment